Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is fantastic. For you, I just finished an episode called Water for All Regulation, all about comparing the different regulations in different areas, like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of, of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how we might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Today's episode is a fun one. Everybody would talk about space for the first time, and there may be a, a glaring uh, absence. You're probably wondering, why didn't we bring up Trump's Space Force and talk about that? Well, because this was recorded before that happened. Maybe we'll bring it up some other time with some other guest, but that's why uh, that isn't... Uh, you have an episode about space, so Space Force stuff is in the news, and it doesn't get brought up. That's why. But, other than that, really great episode. Uh, and thank you all for... I've been getting more support on Patreon uh, lately, which I really appreciate. It's been encouraging. I've been uh, producing more more content for it. I went through one heck of a funk recently. I've been... Uh, I'm putting some episodes about that, about going through uh, depression and indifference and being directionless and feeling lazy and, and trying to get motivated and uh, take better care of myself and that sort of thing. So uh, if you care about hearing all about my personal life, um, I, I'm, I'm sharing it. I'm sharing everything on the Everything podcast on Patreon. Uh, if not, um, I, maybe you don't want to hear about it because you have your own issues uh, to deal with, understandable. I uh, I am I consider myself kind of a, a champion of indifference. Um, so so I support your indifference um, to my indifference. And uh, but uh, that being said, if if uh, if you don't have time to listen, um, I I still appreciate the support, which helps out this podcast and uh, various other projects that. I'm working on, which I will uh, talk more about on the Patreon Everything podcast. So uh, that's all. Just wanted to thank you guys for the support on there and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. 
Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Dr. James Schwartz, part of the philosophy faculty at Wichita State University. He specializes in philosophy and ethics of space exploration. This is a very exciting episode. We're going where no Here We Are podcast has gone before. <laughs> We're talking about space. We've never, I have a science podcast for three years. We haven't talked about space before. Can you believe that, James? You're the hmm. first. Hmm. The subject's wide open. We can we can discuss anything. Your little is, heart desires. I, I, I feel even guilty because I've uh, I've named a paper with that same sort of line where no planetary protection policy has gone before. Oh, I'm such a hack. <laughs> ah, I'm so unoriginal. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so first off, how did you get into? I've never heard of uh, of someone studying the philosophy and ethics of space exploration. I've never. Uh, I've never come across someone like you before. How'd you get into this? Uh, I guess there are two stories there, both true, um, and it really depends on what audience I'm speaking at, which one I say, but you'll, you'll get both of them. Uh, the, 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 the clean story, I guess, is I've just always been passionate about space, always been really interested. You know, I went to space camp as an elementary school student, um, actually had a recent chance to, to visit back uh, at the space camp in Huntsville for a conference, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and so, you know, it's just been always something that was an abiding interest. Um, and it was sort of natural that as I, you know, got into academia, I would start thinking about it. Um, how that actually happened in particular is the story. Well, it's not a bad story. It's just, you know, not one you say at a job interview, um, which is I was hung over at a friend's apartment after a night of drinking in graduate school thinking, I've always liked space. I've never read a philosophy paper about it. Uh, so I wrote one, and somehow it got published, and things just snowballed from there in terms of, uh, you know, getting asked to present at conferences and writing further work on it, uh, and you know, sort of been building my career around that. In terms of, you know, there's a there's a growing wider interest in in people not only in the space sciences but in various areas of academia, space programs that are really interested in having discussions about. Uh, you know, humanities style questions uh, related to space exploration. Mm. So, um, you know, we're, I guess we're not super well known yet in the academic world, but, you know, there's a lot of philosophers and sociologists and, and people in the sort of core natural sciences that think about these things. So, um, Awesome. I've actually, I've done much of my best writing hungover as well. So <laughs> we, we have that in common. Um, so, so when you're talking about the ethics of space exploration. What kind of things are are uh, you concerned about? Uh, a lot of things, really. Um, so one of the areas I got started in was just thinking about rationales for space exploration. So you know, there are a lot of common arguments that people bring up about you know why it's a good thing to engage in space exploration. Things like you know it might help. Uh, stave off resource depletion on Earth that, you know, we ultimately need to escape the planet because it's not going to remain permanently habitable over the very, very long term. Uh, and so, you know, some of the first things I thought about were, you know, okay, let's uh, see what merit that those arguments have. Uh, and I used to think they have a lot of merit or had a lot of merit. Now I'm a little more skeptical of that line of thinking. Uh, but then, you know, other projects crept up. Uh, there was a series of conferences put on by Charles Cockell over at uh, University of Edinburgh. 
and he was interested in questions about space settlement and um, what life would be like uh, within a, a permanent self-sustaining space habitat and how you know there have to be a lot more restrictions on personal liberty because if you open the wrong door, you vent the atmosphere and kill everyone. Yeah. So you know people would have to be much more surveilled. Resources, especially life-giving resources, that you, you don't just have free air, you've got to make it. Mm-hmm. You don't have water readily accessible, you've got to make it somehow from the local environment. Uh, and so, you know, there are all these possibilities for, you know, increased state control over your life. Uh, so, you know, can can't we, we just use the <laughs> honor system in space? Uh, you could. <laughs> um, and it would be an interesting uh, analysis of uh, social evolution <laughs> as to, you know, what, what cultures uh, are able to, to actually thrive and, and, you know, stay alive for more than a week. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> who, who's making space law? I mean, it, to, to, right now, like, like if... Uh, there's, so there's someone on an international space uh, station and someone uh, murders one of their coworkers because they're sick of being in space with this person <laughs> day in and day out. And they're better at the other person's better at flipping around in zero gravity than they are. And they're always showing that off. And one day it just gets to be too much. Is, is there is it is it like a international law that, or is it is are they like space pirates? How does it? How does it work? So I, I'm not a complete legal expert here. So you know the story I'm about to relay might have some 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 errors in the details. But so there's the Outer Space Treaty, uh, which doesn't necessarily deal with you know conflicts between individuals, but it you know outlines state responsibilities. Uh, you know what states are allowed and not allowed to do. Um, and as far as you know the laws uh, regarding you know the, the individual uh, astronauts, cosmonauts, taikonauts. Uh, you know, whatever you are sort of depends on what program you're a part of. But um, basically, you're beholden to the laws of your country. And so if you're an American in space and you murder someone, I mean, you, you can be brought to trial for murder under the American system. Hmm. Um, uh, Even if you, like, murder a, a Russian or something well, see, like see, that. See, what I'm not clear about is is then what state would have jurisdiction, the, the huh. sort of uh, the victim's state or the uh, or the perpetrator's state. Um what was I just thinking of for a moment there? Um, there have been cases of sort of uh, rebellions, as it were. So for the um, – in Skylab, uh, they had basically programmed, you know, every second of, of the lives of the astronauts uh, for, you know, the first mission. And they eventually just got sick of, no, I, you know, I want to take a break. Uh, and, you know, I, I think they shut off their radios for a few minutes or something. And uh, it sort of made the, the mission planners realize, oh, yeah, there's still people – um, you know, they need a little free time. And yeah. so they programmed that in. They designed that into basically every future mission that, okay, you, you don't have any, you know, requirements for, for, say, an hour now. But the astronauts that actually, you know, refused to follow instructions never got to fly again. Uh, oh, and wow. there was, uh, I know, I think it must there was have a, been one hell of a space orgy that they had up there in that seven minutes of freedom, though. You know, and if All it that ever happened, energy? if it ever happened, I don't think NASA would ever say because this was, you know, at the the '70s when they were still really trying to present this, you know, clean image of of good old boys. So, <laughs> so, uh, so who uh, basically who is uh, so when it comes to something like. Um, colonizing the moon or mars eventually or something like that who i mean who's going to decide what 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 parties are involved in deciding um how these laws are created and who who gets to have what territory and what resources 
I mean, nominally, that's that's the the job of the UN, right? Because they're they're the drafters of the Outer Space Treaty, and all of the major spacefaring nations are parties to the treaty. And, and I mean, the current laws are kind of prohibitive of you know taking ownership over land. Uh, that's explicitly barred by the treaty. I forget what uh, article, but there, uh, it explicitly says there is no national appropriation. Uh, of space resources that the, you can't make sovereignty claims. Once you take a rock away, it becomes your property. So there's this weird like loophole you could adopt. Well, you know, I'm not using it there. I brought it back with me, so now it's mine. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the current legal environment is one that says, I mean, you can't put a border on the moon and call it now. This is U.S. territory, uh, and you know, it's it's almost a case of who's gonna who's gonna violate that first, and how is that then going to affect the legal environment? Because what you don't have a, a military force up there, you don't have a police force that's going to say, "Oh no, we've got to kick down this fence." Um, and so that's the sort of thing that hasn't been tested that much. And you know, it, it's it's fairly clear that there's got to be some kind of regulatory change at that international level uh, before I think some of the actors involved are really going to be comfortable. You know, supporting this uh, in full, and I think that's in part why you don't see as much activity in the commercial sector trying to push for you know uh, mining the moon or mining asteroids because the legal environment is so uncertain. Mm. And I'm actually someone that's kind of happy about that because um, I'm skeptical of the commercial space push in terms of uh, resource extraction. Uh, I think uh, you're going to end up with conflicts between uh, commercial objectives and scientific objectives. And I think there's a lot of good science to be done on the moon, on asteroids, that you might um, not have the chance to do if you let the commercial sector do whatever they want up there. Um, asteroids in particular – well, let's, how do I want to frame that issue? Um I think there's this tendency that, that if you know an environment is lifeless, you tend to think it's just a, a mere resource. The only good it could possibly serve is, uh, you know, somehow if you can crack that open and create products with it to sell uh, to others. Uh, but if you think about asteroids, they're going to be um, basically little bits of the early solar system where, I mean, a lot of um, – you know, geologists would love to be able to take a look through one and see, okay, what's the composition here? What can that tell us about what the uh, the solar system was like uh, when that asteroid got formed? And, and the moon is a good repository of information about the history of the solar system. So what I'd like to see as part of, you know, future regulation, and this is something uh, that I've, you know, tried to reason through in a couple publications, is, is to have some, you know, scientific oversight uh, of commercial space resource exploitation. Um, and another issue here is that there's a market issue that, you know, there's not really a market for space resources. Uh, if you've got people living in space, they would be good consumers here. If you're trying to, you know, produce water from the polar crater, craters, yeah, I almost thought I mis misspoke and I didn't. Um, you're nailing it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's some ice in some of the, the craters at the basins of the, the north and south poles where basically the sun never shines. Um that's an interesting metaphor to use. <laughs> There's ice where the sun never shines. Um, uh, some some asteroids will will have uh, water accessible from them, and so that's one possible future industry is water mining from the moon and asteroids. But you know, water is a lot cheaper to use down here when you're living on the surface of the planet. So that sort of industry only makes sense if you've got consumers already in space. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, people talk about rare earth metals, platinum group metals, nickel, things that are in relatively short supply down here. But still, it's a lot more expensive to get it from space. I mean, I think the world where it's cheaper to get nickel from an asteroid to use on the surface of Earth 
is probably a really crummy world that we should try to avoid in the first place. So, I mean, my view is that the use of space resources will probably be best, um, well, the best uses will be for, you know, those already living in space, and we don't really have any permanent habitats, any consumers for that. So it's just not clear, you know, that this this space resource um, economic sector that it really has a, a market at the moment. What if, uh, what if just like Mount Rushmore, we want to um, turn the moon into the shape of Donald Trump's head as a tribute to our great leader. <laughs> is there is there is there anyone preventing that from happening? Um I don't think so, but fortunately <laughs> there's well, I can think of one person that might want to see that happen, but um the money's not there to do that fortunately. I remember yeah, I even came up with an example a few years ago about the uh, um, and another sort of set of regulations deals with orbital allocations. So, mm. you know, a lot of communication satellites, uh, weather satellites are, are at various orbits. Um, and one particularly popular one is geostationary orbit, uh, where basically, you know, you, you're at a distance where the time it takes you to go around the planet is a perfect match or close to it for the rotation of the Earth. So it stays in one place in the in the sky. And so, you know, those are really good for navigation satellites because they sort of stay in the same place. And yeah. yeah. And we bounce the mic and, and make weird noises afterwards. So we'll, we'll see if that gets cut. <laughs> Here go. Um, we can edit that out. Um, uh, so th- there's no sort of hard law here, but the UN is still nominally in charge of the, the sort of soft law policies. And in particular, they have this arm uh, known as the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU. And they have policies about, well, every nation gets a few slots in, in geo, in geostationary orbit. And then beyond that, it's first come, first serve. So if if Donald Trump could secure a launch license to put a gold statue of himself in Geo, uh, th- there's no international prevention of that. There, there, there's no sort of uh, policy from the ITU that that uh, anyone would be violating. And I think that's an oversight, not simply because I think that would be a horrible thing, and I, I would, of all the presidents, to be commemorated that way. <laughs> I would not want this one to be uh, commemorated that way, but. Um, I mean, I think it points to that that in all of the policies we've got, uh, the only concern is with, say, fair access, that that everyone should have some kind of fair opportunity to take advantage of what's available in space. Uh, and when you think about, say, future regulations for, for mining or, or uh, from the moon or asteroids, they might take the same sort of shape that, okay, you know, everyone gets a small share and then afterwards it's first come, first serve. But what I think tends to get lost um, over shorter timescales, say when you're talking uh, 20 years to 200 years, is that the stuff that we'll actually be able to get to is pretty limited in number. Uh, there are a lot of asteroids that are considered near-Earth asteroids that you know get so close to the sun that you know the orbits intersect and, and you wouldn't have to spend too long to get to them. Um, but when you look at the ones that don't require much fuel, which is the ones you're going to go to first, uh, the numbers start to get really small, and the total resources available start to get really small. And so I think there is a um, uh, scarcity issue that, that really hasn't been recognized by many people that think about space resource exploitation. And I think, uh, and this is, again, a view I've pushed for in a few papers of mine, uh, that we need to think carefully about not just uh, – uh, principles, uh, ethical views, laws relating to accessing those resources, but also using them. That there are, you know, frivolous examples of space resource use, and the Trump statue in, in geostationary orbit is a frivolous use of a scarce and valuable resource. 
Uh, but, you know, a, a satellite collecting scientific uh, data would be a good use. So, I mean, I think we can have meaningful uh, deliberations about, you know, what things we ought to be doing in space. Uh, and I, that, that's a conversation that um, I'm trying to begin, uh, but that isn't being conducted uh, by a lot of the, the, the folks that are the ones with the money to start working on these things. So you're saying I can't have a toilet made out of moon rock just yet. That wouldn't be the best. Um, yeah, I mean, you could if, if, if you have billions of dollars to, you know, fund a, an organization that will uh, allow that to happen. <laughs> um, uh, you know, that, that could happen. However, uh, I think, yeah, there are probably better, better uses <laughs> for moon rocks than, than collecting comedian shit. Um, <laughs> what, what is, well, uh, <laughs> If you can think of any, <laughs> let me know. Um, what about uh, <laughs> what about looking? What about looking for? Uh, what about looking for searching for life on on other planets? Is this is this even like necessarily our business to do? If if. Uh, Say, say we are able to. Uh, there's some planet covered in ice or something we can drill in and get into the water and find light. Is it? Do we have any business um, going there? How, who makes that kind of decision? Hmm, hmm. Uh, oh, I mean, this is something we're already thinking about doing in some sense, right? Uh, I mean, we've been uh, actively searching for signs of life on Mars. Uh, you know, so far, uh, we haven't really engaged in any direct observations that would tell us one way or the other about Europa or, or Enceladus, right? Moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And you, you mentioned sort of, you know, things covered in ice that probably have some liquid water underneath. Those would be, you know, the, the major candidates. Uh, and of course, you know, where there's water, the, the chances of life, or at least life as we know it, are, are much greater. Um, so I guess when you ask, you know, whose business is it? I mean, are you thinking about, the possible consequences for that life, or are you thinking about possible disruptions to sort of human society in reaction to it? Because I, I take those to be different questions. Um, and it, I mean, they've both been thought about quite a bit. So the, 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 the field we're talking about here is astrobiology. And, um, you know, it, it's part and parcel of the development of the science here that alongside, you know, the folks have raised these questions about not only you know, hey, suppose we find it, uh, what what should we do? Do we need to protect it? Are we allowed to collect some of it to study it? Because it's most likely that if we find life somewhere in the solar system, it will just be microbial life or very, very simple life forms. Uh, we're pretty we're pretty certain that there aren't, you know, large complex life forms, things like animals. But again, we haven't seen inside of Enceladus or, or Europa, so there could be some, some big stuff swimming around. Um... Uh, so, so, so again, I think both questions have been have been discussed quite a bit, um, and you know, one of them, as far as you know, what what would the reactions be to people here? Uh, one hypothesis that you know this might really pose a challenge for for people with religious convictions that you know, well, wait a minute, Earth is special. God only made life here, so of course there's no life out there. So why even look in the first place? Uh, there's some evidence to think that. Um, Aside from like uh, you know evangelical Christians, uh, most other religious people wouldn't have that myopic of a view. Um, and I've actually been doing a little uh, digging lately about, you know, how supportive is the public uh, for the search for life. 
And what's not clear there is how the general public conceives of it, whether they think it's, you know, searching for little green men on Mars, whether they actually recognize there's some good science being done about habitability, you know, whether a planet is capable of supporting life, and they conceive of it as, say, you know, the the search for evidence of microbial life on Mars. Uh, Because some people might be more enthusiastic about finding intelligent life, and they wouldn't care at all about finding microbial life. Uh, and of course, there's also right SETI, um, um, and that's sort of transformed into METI, which would be messaging extraterrestrial intelligences. Um, so that would be you know a different set of issues where what you're actually looking for is you know radio signals from other solar systems or other galaxies that would be evidence of an intelligent civilization. And the METI conversation is about should we be actually sending out messages, you know, beyond the the, the radio signals that already get out there anyway. You know, should we deliberately aim uh, purposeful messages at you know locations where we think you know we, hey there might be an intelligent civilization that'll hear this in in forty to four million years, um, and so, so so that's that's one aspect of the question and, and I don't have any you know really developed views there. Um, one issue that I've thought more about is th- this question about well you know would you have any obligations to the life itself if you found it, and from a sort of um, environmental perspective, that's a very interesting question. Because if you're talking about microbial life, uh, right, you're you're talking about a form of life that, you know, we really grant no respect or consideration for already, right? I mean, we depend on it, right? I mean, if I I were to take away all of the microbes in your body, you would not have a very fun time, Uh, you know, so anytime you've got a stomach bug, there's the power of microbial life, right, or bacteria. Um, And and so that's something that if you look at the history of environmental ethics, which is you know the field of philosophy that that's addressed questions about um, you know ethical consideration, not just for humans or, or other animals that can feel pain, but for you know for species as a whole, for ecosystems, are these things that ought to be granted consideration that ought to be taken account of when you're making a decision about what to do? Um, I mean, it is it is it's going to be hard for people to wrap their heads around. I think. Those kinds of concerns about something like Mars, when uh, you be like, "Well, my kombucha has more life in it than, <laughs> <laughs> than than this life that we're trying to protect on Mars." Do you think that that's going to be a difficult argument for people to when most people are going to be like, "Let's go, let's explore yeah, yeah. it." I mean, it depends on the position you take because if if you adopt a view that you know every single individual organism. Uh, is you know do moral consideration uh, or maybe even like counts equally then that's going to be really untenable because you know even if you are uh you know the, the best vegan possible there's still all forms of life that you know you need to kill to survive or you need to use to survive uh so it seems like the view that says you know even an individual I was micro- waiting for someone to knock <laughs> vegans by the way I'm fi- <laughs> finally <laughs> well that doesn't mean that they still wouldn't be doing better than lots of others in terms of respect for life it's just <laughs> sure. hey, you, you, I mean you can't you know exist just without kidding. yeah yeah um i didn't mean to throw you off no but... no 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 that's fine um i mean i'm uh, i i I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian. <laughs> now Although, I really feel know. like we derailed the conversation. <laughs> what were we talking about before uh, vegans? Does uh, anyone consideration remember? Consideration of individual, individual, yeah, respect for life. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I just imagine one of my best friends in, in the, the space uh, community is a vegetarian, and if he listens to this, I'm sure he'll be shaking his head. So, Tony, I apologize uh, if you're listening oh, to this. I have so many vegan friends, and they, they know I don't <laughs> uh, care. Uh, I care. I, I recognize the arguments. I just... I, I really enjoy food. Um, 
Uh, but yeah, so, so it seems like the view that you know every respecting every individual organism is probably untenable. Uh, so if you bump that right. up a level of generality, if you say talk about communities of life or species, this actually gives you a way of saying, um, you know, it's, it's okay to have the kombucha because you know you're not destroying something unique there. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you find that sole community of microbes on Mars, you have to, that's now really special. And maybe you can take a few of them for study, but what you have to respect uh, is, is that community of life. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a little easier to handle. That's actually more practicable, right? You can actually you know, make decisions on the basis of that and know whether you've broken that principle or not. Whereas you know, individual microbes, you, you don't interact with microbes on an individual level, right? So it's just – it wouldn't even be a principle that you could possibly employ. Mm -hmm. um, and you could go up from there and say, you know, it's not necessarily that community of life. Maybe it's some wider ecosystem. That's what you have to make sure that, you know, remains in good function. Uh, so there are a lot of ways that, that you could dice things up here. And they affect, you know, what particular decisions you'd end up making. And it seems like in the case for the search for life on Mars, the appropriate positions would be more about either communities of life or entire ecosystems to the extent that Mars has any or has evidence of past uh, such things. Um, and I think it's maybe less difficult for, for someone un uninitiated with, with environmental ethics to think through that because you can still sort of grasp onto this idea that, you know, hey, this is a unique form of life mm -hmm. and certainly we want to learn from it. Uh, but, you know, wouldn't it be a great loss if we were to just wantonly destroy it? Um, you know, shouldn't we, you know, even if we end up doing that eventually, you know, shouldn't we take the time to learn from it? Because, you know, if it's a genuinely new example of life, uh, we could learn some important things about biology, right? It could totally change our basic thinking about how life works in a way that not only allows us to understand that new life, but sheds new light on the biology we're already familiar about. And, and it's this basic idea that if you, if you make these fundamental changes at a very basic level in science, that precipitates in all sorts of ways that you can't even anticipate. Uh, and an example from a friend of mine, Gonzalo Munavar, uh, he, he likes to talk about... Um, theorizing about light. You know, so you've got Einstein a long time ago asking these really odd questions about, you know, what would it seem like if I were riding a beam of light? Uh, and, and, you know, you eventually get some theoretical work there. And it's not too long before that happens that you end up with lasers. And it's not too long uh, before that, ha uh, after that happens that you get, say, lasers used in surgery. Um, but, you know, suppose you're in the late 1800s, you're trying to think, okay, how can I make the surgery environment more sterile? Well, I can try to get sharper knives. I can try to come up with better disinfectants. You're never going to think of a laser sitting in, you know, 1880 uh, as a way to improve surgery. Uh, so it's only after you had that big advancement in, you know, very fundamental physics that you introduce new concepts that you could then tinker with and lead to applications. And the same principle, uh, we think, is likely to apply with discovering another form of life, that... We're going to have to rethink some theories, and the new concepts that get devised there uh, will end up very likely, uh, you know, benefiting us in all sorts of ways. And I mean, that, that's a more general argument for basic research. It's not unique uh, to space exploration, although it might be that space exploration and you know the, the search for life is, is especially conducive to this. If you do find, you know, the second data point, a new example of life in the universe. 
And we might even find um, new more, much like what we did with lasers, we might be finding more interesting ways to entertain our cats, uh, <laughs> <laughs> too. We would have never imagined. And before, know, before lasers, it was just yarn. And That's you know, all we You had. know what I have in my head now is that, that viral video of the cats uh, meowing to you know, the, the universe stuff in the background. I haven't seen that. You know, it to, sounds adorable. I'll have to try to yeah, link that you to you. Show it to um, me afterwards. I, I love a good cat video. <laughs> so imagine cats, uh, you know, with looks on their faces, though they're expressing wonder at the universe and and and, and meowing auto tune to some ethereal uh, tune. Uh, I've seen it right now; it's beautiful. So, with all these considerations that we're, this is something that I think when uh, if we can get a little further out there and talk about aliens, uh, intelligent life coming in. And, uh, and into our solar system or invading Earth or whatever. When, when it comes to that, um, that kind of, uh, discussion, I often think that they would have the same approach that, that we would have going to, which is like, oh, if we find this unique life, we'd want to <laughs> study it and we'd want to protect it, hopefully. And other people are like, no, they would just, see us simple creatures and take all of our resources, which I think that an intelligent species that is capable enough to get to Earth without us detecting it first probably wouldn't need, like, fossil fuels anymore. What do, what do you... You got thoughts on aliens? Do you think much about aliens? Um... See, that's the thing. I where, know it's not yeah. a big part of your work, but you're the first person on here talking about space. If I don't bring oh, so, up so, aliens, so, so, I'm so, okay, angry, I see. angry letters. I, see. I, I need people. to cede to perceived peer pressure here. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I mean, so, so there are arguments that, that it, it could look any number of different ways, right? That, um, and, and you wonder how much of this is people holding up mirrors to themselves because, right? right I mean, think about the people that worry that, um, Oh, they're just going to come in and, and you know raise the whole planet and you know remake it however they'd like to. Um, you know, I think the worry there is, oh, are they going to be like some of the worst of us that you know don't care at all about environmental destruction and see anything that's not themselves as a resource for their gain? Um, that's per- certainly possible. Uh, you know, we we can't rule that out, but nor can we rule out that you know they would be more benign, and that when you know when you think about technological advancement, part of that what what's come with it. Uh, in our terms, is that you know we've become more aware of the effect on our of our actions on the environment. At least some of us have. Um, it seems like the more we progress, yeah. the more that we learn, the more um, empathetic we are, and the more aware we are of of uh, smaller and smaller um, organisms. Yeah, but, but in some sense, it's still that one data point problem. I mean, okay, you know, what 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 features would this other civilization share in common with us? And, you know, what attitudes toward other forms of life w- w- would be implicated there? And it's just, you know, hey, w- w- we can we can argue one way or the other, but, you know, we're never going to establish anything definitive. Um, it know, might just suck up our sun and leave. No, cause... they'd have to have a really good technology for that. Um <laughs> Um, Who knows? And of course, we wouldn't stand a chance of stopping them unless you know a, a hopeful science fiction writer comes up with a plot to do so. But, you know. uh, let's get to work. <laughs> yeah, um, that's interesting because you know I think people view science fiction in particular <gasps> as serving a lot of roles. And of course, one of, one of the common things that people like to bring up, I think, when they're talking with people that might not like sci-fi that want to try to make it appealing to them, is well, you know, it, it lets us think about today's problems in in more interesting terms, and. I don't know. Maybe I'm just weird, but I, I don't. You know, I, I I care about today's problems, but when I'm watching sci-fi or reading books, I want to I want to know what problems would they have 500 years in the future? Like, you know, I want to learn what life is like there. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and you know, w- what are the struggles that the person that that has a spaceship that can go anywhere in the galaxy in a few days? You know, you know, w- what's good about their lives? What's bad about them? So I really care about the, the, what the future life is like when I'm looking at sci-fi. But <clears throat> I bet it's just as boring. Maybe, maybe. You just scale it up. You I just mean, get used to it. It depresses the hell out of me that I know that I will not ever be able to set foot on another planet, won't be able to, you know, just go gaze and, and look at things. That's one of the things I most would like to do is, you know, just be able to, you know, visit Jupiter, uh, you know, travel around all the, and hopefully the radiation wouldn't kill me. But, or, you, you know. You don't, you don't have hope of... Uh, uh, I, I, you know, well, you know, I could live just long enough to be able to take advantage of life extension. So, you know, there's maybe, maybe a chance there. I don't know. You don't think um, we're getting into the space tourism territory in but, the next 40 years or so? Well, yeah, maybe. But, uh, you know, I, for that, I don't know if you know how much philosophers get paid, but uh, <laughs> none of us are, are going to be engaging in space tourism anytime soon. Um, sure. I mean, I don't know. There, there, there's a grant Unless out there for, you for space. to make a case that they need, they need you. Uh, maybe you can give. Uh, maybe you can help out with some of the tours, and maybe you can give one of docent. your uh-huh. your talks about space space Essex uh, space Essex ethics yes. yeah we're, 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 we're gonna we're gonna go to Essex and give a in- talk about space, <laughs> and, and then the, the, the Britons will wonder what we're up to. But um, at least it's a free trip to Essex. It's <laughs> yeah. as close. It's as close to a different world <laughs> as you're going to get from Kansas. Uh. <laughs> I I like that reaction. Ah. We see the poster in back, right? This uh, old novel, The Gods Hate Kansas. It's about um these aliens that uh land a couple metal spheres in the middle of a a, a plane that doesn't exist because they created some cities because I think the author had never been to Kansas. But uh and they start taking over people's minds and causing them to build a spaceship to go to the moon and I want to say they made it. A, there was a British movie made on the basis of it, but they changed a lot of the locations and plot points. Are, are you a big sci-fi guy? If you're if you're into space, does that automatically just mean you you have to be big into the sci-fi? Uh, they 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 tend to uh, arrive together for for most folks, I think. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's a case of. When you look at the the work a lot of people do, it's not necessarily connected to science fiction. I mean, that that is a concern for someone in my position that, that if you're not familiar with these topics and you're not familiar with the idea that, hey, you know, this is stuff that's happening. These are projects that are being undertaken or will be undertaken in the future. Uh, one can react as though, oh, you know, oh, you're just, you know, thinking about Star Trek. It's like, well, I, I try not to think about Star Trek because I, I try to promote the idea that, you know, that this is stuff that, that that is serious stuff that's happening now. There are serious ethical and legal questions that we need to address over the next few years. And I mean, no, I, don't, don't get me wrong. I love Star Trek, and every now and then I do reference it. As we, you know, heard at the beginning here, I've even got a paper where I, you know, made some really bad joke about planetary protection policies. And yeah, sure. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, I do want to try to to separate, you know questions simply related to science fiction and questions related to sort of real space. Hmm. Um, but no, I mean, I think there's there's definitely value in science fiction for some of the long-range questions. Uh, and the meetings I referenced earlier uh, run by Charles Cockell, these sort of extra, uh, extraterrestrial liberty series, thinking about, you know, life in space. Um, you know, one of the, the groups that he brought to the table uh, were science fiction authors, in particular Stephen Baxter, who, you know, used to write books with Arthur Clarke. 
Uh, and, and Steve gave a couple wonderful presentations about how, uh, you know, some various stories throughout the history of sci-fi had, you know, presented these, you know, basically thought experiments. You know, you know here's a way things could go wrong. So, so here's a possibility to try to hedge against. And uh, one of the most recent presentations I've given was about uh, world ship travel. So, you know, one possible method of trying to send humans to another solar system is you build this huge ship that can house hundreds or thousands of people, and you try to have this self-sustaining society that could endure the voyage for, say, five centuries to another solar system. And the thought is, okay, well, you know, how are you going to make sure people stay alive on that? Because it seems like this is a very limited environment that's going to, you know, cause all sorts of cultural changes. Um, and, you know, one place I turn to for just trying to think about, you know, what are the, the important questions and what ethical principles might uh, need to be used to think about this was, you know, I read a lot of novels about it. Um, and, you know, one of the common things you see is, okay, you know, are you going to have to have this strict education on board where you only teach the, the, the new children only the skills they need to keep the ship running? Uh, and, you know, the reaction there is something like, well, that, that seems like a really crappy life. Uh, we shouldn't be doing that sort of thing if that's the, the way that people are going to have to live, that, you know, going to another solar system is important eventually because we can't stay here forever. Uh, the sun will see to that. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't be hasty about it because when, you, when you're trying to do something right away, you're much more likely to overlook all the ways things could go wrong. Uh, and... You know, especially for things like that. I mean, science fiction can be a wonderful source of, of you know, because the interesting stories are the ones where things go wrong. Uh, People work, love drama. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully it works out at the end, right? Um, but but you know, no, nobody nobody wants to watch the TV show about uh, uh, a ten year mission where nothing bad happens, just completely no, yeah. uneventful. Um, they just collect a little bit of, they collect a few samples and head back home and land safe. But, I mean, there can be a danger in that, too, because you can tend to overstate the significance of certain problems. And you don't want to assume that um, just because it hasn't been anticipated in uh, the science fiction literature means it's not something that would still end up causing a problem. Or just because it did happen in the science fiction literature means that is something that, that is likely. And this is an area – I mean, and this applies to space settlement even more locally, like you know, setting up a colony on the moon. Um we don't have a lot of good data about what would happen to the people. Uh, and so I think this is an area where, you know, sociology can become really important. Psychology can become really important. And it's not to say there isn't already some work going on trying to learn about this. So, uh, one type of case that's often used would be, you know, taking a look at what happens with people that are stationed in Antarctica. And then, of course, uh, as preparation for some long-duration missions, right, um, you know, the space programs will set up these bases. So there's uh, some place, you know, in super northern Canada where they have, you know, people or they've had people, you know, um, doing a simulated Mars mission where, they, you know, they're up there for like, you know, 300 days and all they have are, you know, uh, radio communications that are delayed as though they were on Mars. Uh, so it's not to say there haven't been attempts to study this, but but what really hasn't happened is, you know, any research directly related to, you know, setting up a new society. And it's not clear that we'll have that opportunity until you actually go up there and do that. Uh, but uh, that is one of the issues is that there's a lot of it that that is going to remain speculation until we try to do this for the first time, which means we should really have a tempered enthusiasm about it. Mm. Uh, and, and that's been an emphasis of a lot of my work is, hey, I, I love space. I, I want to see all sorts of things happen in space, but I don't I don't want to carry through with bullshit expectations. Right. I mean, that's, uh, th that's my big thing is when you look at what people say about why space is important, 
um, there's a lot of bullshit. And that's a technical t- philosophical term. Let me relay what I mean by it. Um, and this comes from a monograph from Harry Frankfurt from the mid-'80s. It's a little, uh, you can buy it now as a little book called On Bullshit. And the basic thought here is that, that when you're bullshitting, you're speaking without concern for whether what you're saying is true or false. So you're basically you know, making a claim in the absence uh, of any knowledge or evidence about whether it is indeed the case. And I think a lot of the central claims that people make when they're advocating for the importance of space exploration, you know, we're by nature explorers, we're destined to go to the stars, it's in our genes to do this, uh, those are bullshit claims. Uh, even if they're true, nobody's ever spoken them with the kind of evidence from, say, biology or evolutionary biology that would actually confirm that. Um, you know, talking about you know how we need to conquer the space frontier and that will help us avoid societal stagnation. Uh, you know, I've got a whole paper explaining why that's bullshit. Um, and you know, so so I, I'm for space exploration, uh, but 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 I want I want it to be done for for good reasons. Uh, how are you that hopeful? Uh, how do you do you think humans are going to get off this rock? I mean, we're going to destroy ourselves first, aren't we? Uh, possibly, possibly. And that's why some people think like we really need to get that space settlement up tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, maybe all the resources you'd have to throw into that are the ones that could have, you know, let us stay here for another couple hundred years. Sure. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it's necessary over the long term. I don't think it's urgent that we settle space. No, I think the scientific study is something that needs to be supported more strongly even today. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I worry about, especially given current political trends one worries even more it's not just in the US but you know the, the sort of the, the super right wing nationalistic impulse seems to be taking hold more and that scares the shit out of me um, it might only be four years it might be a wake up call um, it might be a wake up call and people might, people might start in a backlash to all of this becoming a little more aware and scientific minded I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't so, know it's tough to say yeah, I mean, they, they did just they did just finish that noah's ark and uh wherever it is outside of cincinnati uh have you there's the creationist museum oh is that have, the part of the ken ham thing the, or? yeah 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 so, if, if, so, if you if you tr- like i look at that i'm like well we probably have a little ways we, we've got go there, there, there's a noah's ark church nearby somewhere here it's it's up on the northwest side of town so if you've got a half hour spare but but, but that's uh, that's like kind of what we're eventually trying to build for for the future probably a couple hundred uh years from now but uh, yeah well I mean, this is well, i mean one of the angles that people try to 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 promote uh space settlement in particular on is hey i mean shit's gonna hit the fan here right so let's get this you know uh outpost up there so at least the species can endure i, I think that um you know it Okay, that that would technically keep humanity alive, but that's still not going to help people because that doesn't help anyone down here. And so it's not clear to me that space is going to save the planet, as it were, that that to save the planet, we need to do that down here. At the same time, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing things in space. And I think uh, there are people that think that these two things are incompatible, and, and they're not. They can help one another, indeed, because you know what you learn about how other atmospheres work can help you learn how atmospheres work, can help you learn you know how best to to mitigate the effects of 
of anthropogenic climate change. So, so I mean, there are a lot of good links to draw. And I, I mean, I think the people doing the scientific work are the ones that sort of already know about them. But the sort of the, the clamoring about, oh, you know, hooray space or hooray environment, sort of I mean, those groups I don't think are necessarily as aware of, you know, the ways in which, you know, these sort of two scientific communities can actually really meaningfully and helpfully interact with one another. I think I want to... I want to go if I can. No. I, want to, I want to go to. Oh, some I go back and forth. Sometimes I'm like, do I want to go to Antarctica and be away from it all and just have <laughs> delayed transactions with people? And then other times I'm like, no, I guess I like it here. I don't know. It's tough to say. I think it'd be a little lonely in space, but uh, I guess if you're a loner, I feel like I'm kind of a loner. If you could just like you know come back uh, with a snap of a finger, you know that would be. Yeah. A nice way to do it, because then when you got tired of being lonely, um, you could just come back to society. Sure. When you get tired of society, you could just head out. Uh, so, you know, maybe we need to work on wormhole travel first or something, right? <laughs> what do you think about the um, idea of, of uh, what was the thing that came out last year? Someone was talking about, like, bombing Mars or whatever to create... Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, oh, uh, like is that terraforming? Water, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean... Um, if you can raise the temperature of Mars enough, you're going to get this sort of runaway greenhouse effect where the, the frozen CO2, you know, uh, turns into atmosphere and that, you know, increases the ability of the planet to hold heat. And so it gets warmer. So more of the CO2 uh, sort of um, sublimates and you get more of an atmosphere. And, and so one way to start that heating is to just, you know, start crashing asteroids in the surface of the planet. Or you could just set up some, you know, nuclear reactors and start to warm it that way. Um some ethical concerns there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's the same questions about, you know, we don't know for sure that there's no life there. And if you, you know, drastically alter the planetary conditions, you could turn it from a situation that's conducive to that life to one that isn't. Of course, maybe if it's sort of the kind of thing where it's it's been in the cold so long, so it's kind of dormant, by warming it up, you might help that life along. So some people have tried to argue that, you know, hey, what we need to do is if there's life there, help it out. Uh, but then I think, you know, when most people talk about that, they're uh, trying to make uh, the planet uh, habitable for humans eventually. And it, it, it's tough to know if it can ever quite get there fully. I mean, I think um, what they were saying in the late 90s when they were really coming up with proposals about how to do this, like you could get to about half the atmospheric pressure at sea level on Mars if you warm it up enough and you, you know, release all of the, the, the frozen CO2. Uh, and then you start, you know, putting some organisms there that can help turn that carbon dioxide into some oxygen so, you know, we can breathe. Uh, so it's not clear that you could ever just have, you know, someone dressed as you or I in jeans and a T-shirt without any, you know, special apparatus uh, freely roaming the surface. Um, but, you know, so suppose there's no life Well, if there. I can't be stylish on Mars, yeah, then yeah. no thank you. I don't want to well, go. Well, you know, I, I imagine that, that that suit fashion would start to become <laughs> a, a much more interesting thing. Um but, you know, so, so one question then is, you know, suppose we, we find for sure that there's no life and maybe we could never be sure about it. But, you know, suppose there isn't. Um, the arguments against doing that tend to be a little more contrived and tend to appeal to only a smaller group of academics. So I've got some friends that uh, are going to want to argue that, well, you know, even if there's no life on Mars, it's still something that's valuable in itself as it is. Maybe it's somehow valuable as a, a you know, a grand cultural artifact, or maybe it's this sort of, you know, the beauty of the landscape as it is. And to engage in one of these, you know, planetary engineering projects would destroy that thing of value. 
Uh, and I don't want to say that the, those positions are incoherent, uh, but they're hard to defend because uh, w- when you start uh, trying to articulate, you know, why those things are valuable and why that value should be accommodated in, in decision making, it's just a, a more tenuous position to be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's certainly interesting to see what the arguments are, uh, because you know, if you want to engage in one of those projects, it's important that you make sure you're not destroying something of value. Um, you know, one idea that's been floated in the literature is, you know, maybe you could have these planetary parks where you try to like leave this area of the planet as it is originally. So, yeah. um, and then of course, hopefully you never get a Martian administration that wants to sell that land to the private sector <laughs> for, for, uh, well, I don't know if there's oil on Mars. <laughs> Depends if there was life there before and if it's, uh, degraded in the, the right way. And I'm, I'm imagining some, uh, planetary scientist is, is going to be listening to this and saying, how ignorant is this guy talking about oil on Mars, the way the size of the planet and the type of life that could have ever been there could have never led to the right conditions for, for petroleum? It's just and, a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Um, principle of charity, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is, uh, it's been interesting. This is, uh, we've never uh, talked about this kind of stuff before on the podcast. Do you have any, uh, so because this is new territory for us, you have any uh, any books that you're into that you'd, you'd suggest to the, uh, well, the uh, listener? Well, I have a book. Uh, it's an edited volume of papers addressing a number of different um, ethical questions related to space exploration. It's called The Ethics of Space Exploration, uh, edited by myself and uh, Tony Milligan. It's uh, put out through Springer uh, back in 2016. Um, and That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> um, any uh, any other like closing thoughts you want to leave the listener with? <sighs> closing thoughts, huh? Um, I, no, I, as, a, as, a, as a philosopher, I do about. feel obligated to leave things open ended. <laughs> Perfect answer. I have each guest each week name a nonprofit of their choice. So, uh, what nonprofit would you like to plug? Uh, how about the uh, Planetary Society? They're a sort of a national uh, space science organization that engages in advocacy explicitly for uh, space science. That's very fitting. I thought you were going to be like, dogs, save dogs. Dogs are good, too. Dog, dogs are good. Cats are good. Um, <laughs> the the more cat rock. video, uh, save punk rock. <laughs> punk rock does need saving. <laughs> Get out there, support space, and support punk rock, yeah. everybody. Support hey, your I, local I, punk I, rock I, artist. Know. That that is a that is a nonprofit uh, enterprise. Uh, uh, hell, I do both, right? I mean, I, I, <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, I write uh, far too literal metaphor space songs. I mean, I've got a song that I actually had uh, uh, the, the lyrics. Wait, you're a punk rocker? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I what do you be. play? Uh, guitar. A lead guitar or bass well, guitar? Well, uh, I mostly do solo acoustic stuff because I don't band? have a band. But you don't have a I'd band? I'd like to be in a band. But, All right. But no. Well, um, here we go. Maybe yeah. maybe someone in uh, yeah. the Wichita area will be listening, and you'll have your punk rock space band. You write about space in your... in your <laughs> not, not, all, not all of it, but yeah. I've, I've, and I try to... Uh, oh, I want to hear I, space songs. I, I, I can't I can wait. send you some stuff, or once we're done, even yes. I've got a guitar here. I can just play a little bit. But That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice! I see. Yeah, I didn't even notice the guitar but, before. Uh, yeah, no, I actually for one of the songs I had a, a, a an astronomy PhD referee the lyrics to make sure that you know I wasn't making any mistakes and and <laughs> metaphors because the song's called "He's Just a Proto Star," and the thought is we're talking about two different stars in an early stage in evolution, and um, 
So, so the, the the romantic, the desired romantic partner is orbited around this one star, mm-hmm. and that's the protostar that's going to turn into a brown dwarf. So it's never going to get very bright. You know, you're never going to have you know nice life on that planet. So the, the whole song is about encouraging the planet to orbit around me, which is the protostar that's going to turn into a nice G's type star like our sun, and you know all of your dreams <laughs> will come true. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's the, you're the star that's gonna make cheesy, cheesy hyper literal space metaphors. I love it. I, I I introduce a fair amount. Of, well, I, it depends on the act that I'm doing. I have a few different acts that I do, but I always introduce a little bit of science into my act, and I have yet to actually approach a scientist and be like, "Hey, can you peer review this to make sure that this is actually <laughs> accurate?" I take some real liberties. So I commend you for actually going out of your way to make sure you're accurate in your art. That's So wonderful. I approach it the same way as scholarship. 99% of good scholarship is knowing enough not to embarrass yourself around colleagues. <laughs> Well, thank you, James, for joining me. And everybody, check out the book, The Ethics of Space Exploration. Super interesting stuff. I appreciate you coming on the show. And I appreciate you listeners for being such wonderful, curious folks. We'll talk with you next week. Special treat this week. You get to hear a song from the guest. James Schwartz sent me me a link to one of his songs and uh so you get to hear some some space music after that wonderful space talk how about that um yeah that's fun you know what else is fun next week's episode we're going to be talking with biome labs in wichita they have uh they have basically like things that look like band-aids that are uh, that are doing mris going to change the world real exciting stuff they do another cool stuff as well um but uh bandages that are going to change the world is the big exciting thing i can't wait for you guys to hear more uh i have a bunch of great episodes in the bank like i mentioned i went through a bit of a funk lately I feel like i'm pulling myself out of it slowly but surely i'm feeling like uh like instead of being like uh down in the dumps i'm just kind of like dragging a little bit uh you know just just not uh not super motivated yet uh, just a, a little not quite up to speed i don't feel like but but getting there and um and that's whoo that's way better than not being able to do anything uh which is awful uh depression it's brutal. Um, anyway, we'll get through it together. So, we have a wonderful next, I think I have six weeks of episodes or something like that recorded. And they're all uh, they're all pretty awesome. So, thank you guys. And I will talk with you more next week. Thanks for the writings on iTunes and the comments and reviews. Those are super helpful. And those of you that listen to the end, you are, of course, my favorite. I just want to be someone important in your very starry sky. To be a part of the expanding universe that transfigures you with curiosity. Though I am a guiding light, I shine as brightly as a. Pre-
sinners like me Increase in luminosity As we share more of ourselves with the universe If only I could find the courage to share myself with you I might grow brighter I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. That's the title. <laughs> One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich- I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I, I'm a I bat. People. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my. 